Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, the best of Risk number 21, you'll hear David Who. Daddy, Daddy, I want to see some asses and titties. Let's watch Porky's. And all the, all the kids are laughing. Yeah, the kid knows what he wants in life. Word. That and more. But first, folks, on September 15th, the Risk Live show is at Caveat in New York City. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, simultaneously live-streamed on YouTube. Get your tickets at risk-show.com tour. And folks, did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training? Come find me at kevinallison.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Beastie Boys behind me now. And this is the best of Risk number 21. About twice a year, we do these best of compilations. This time around, I think we're going to have two of them. We're going to have an all new stories episode next week and the week after. Another one of these best ofs because we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't narrow it down to just one episode this time. But whenever you want to introduce the podcast to a new listener, best of episodes are the way to go. And do you have a friend or a family member who likes to listen to podcasts? and who likes stories, but who's a little bit shy about risk. You know, uh, risk is a little bit too R-rated or, or, or can sometimes get a little too dark for them, anything like that. Those folks are going to love our new podcast series called Real. And anyone can check out our sneak preview of the first two episodes of Real at risk-show.com slash real. Scroll down to fill out the survey once you've heard the first two episodes and give us feedback so we can make Real the best it can possibly be when it does debut for, for real. <laughs> Again, that's at risk-show.com slash real. Let's get to the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from two of our very favorite storytellers, David Who and Ray Christian. But before that, we're going to hear from Blair Saki, a story that she shared when Risk was appearing live at the Bell House in Brooklyn. You can find Blair at Blair Saki on Instagram. And here she is now with a story we call 
party pooper. Okay, so I guess I became a woman when I had a psychic come to my 12th birthday party and she made everyone cry. <laughs> like four out of the eight of us cried. It was such an abortion of a birthday party that the GOP would ban me from all future birthday parties if they could. I don't know why. I wanted a psychic to come, I guess because like I thought all the other sleepover parties were a little played out and I was obsessed with death. I don't know. Um, I was a big reader and really into fantasy and stories and magic and escape. A sensitive 12-year-old little freak, if you will. Um, I don't know, I asked my mom about this whole kerfuffle last week and she said that it was her idea to have the psychic. And I was like, no way, it was my bitch. Um, but honestly, this whole thing is so much worse if it actually was her idea. Um, so I remember it being a chilly October night in the Southern California suburbs. And if there was gonna be any mischief where I grew up, you know, we had to create it ourselves. My older brothers were sleeping at a friend's house that night and my dad was away on business, I think, or a golf trip or something. I don't know what it was, but uh, my mom got all the manly men out of the house so that they wouldn't poo-poo all the things that come along with like a little girl's sleepover and a fortune teller. <laughs> My mom was close, she's a stay-at-home mom, like a good one at that, but um, she also has like a no crying in baseball type of toot, as you'll find out. Um, so what did I think this sidekick was gonna tell us? Hmm, I don't know, maybe uh, when our periods and tits were gonna come, if Charlie the Vassar like me or this girl Megan, um, if, if I would grow up to be an actress or an inventor, if I was gonna marry Justin Timberlake. <sighs> I guess you think a psychic is gonna understand context in this situation? <laughs> that it's a 12-year-old's birthday party? And keep it positive and light? <sighs> but really, we did not have any sort of vetting process. <laughs> There is no TSA for psychics. No, back in the 90s, we found this bitch in the penny saver. There was no Yelp back then. No Google or background check. Little did we know that this lady was like the Craigslist killer of psychics. So we're all in the den, hanging out, eating snacks, and waiting for our turn. And my mom told us not to tell each other's readings until the end, because um, it would be a surprise. 
And I remember it was just like a smoky fall smell in the air. And, um, you know, we waited till nighttime. So it had like a spooky feeling. And I was up first because everyone else was scared, which should have been a sign. Um, <laughs> and my mom and I set it up like you had to walk out to the backyard along this path to a secluded table. <laughs> In the dark lit, only by candlelight. We put votive candles along the walkway to give it a real vibe. And I remember being really nervous to walk out there, um, which is a weird way to feel at your own birthday in your own backyard. Uh, this lady could have molested us all, honestly. That could have even maybe been a better outcome than what happened. <laughs> when I got out there, she looked like just a way more banged up Stevie Nicks. Um, <laughs> she just looked like she took down a pack of heaters a day and probably got into some meth in like the California desert. Her name was Terry. Of course her name was Terry. And um, she was wearing a lot of drapey clothes and was just supremely unimpressed. This woman was like if the character of the children eating witch in Hansel and Gretel came to life. So I got there and you know, and it's just the whole thing's feeling like hocus pocus or like I'm walking the plank and just like I have this general vibe that shit's about to go down. So she made like no pleasantries, very clinical, no happy birthdays. <laughs> <sighs> or warmth. <laughs> Just right off the bat, she was like, all right, let me see your hand. Okay, I see these lines. Uh, this is a good line. It's your birthday. Your dad doesn't love you. <laughs> and I was like, how do you know that? <laughs> and she was like, well, he's not here, is he? <laughs> and in my head, in my 12-year-old head, I was like, damn, I don't have a comeback, dude. <laughs> the whole thing went by so fast, I was stunned, you know? You know when like, you're so shocked that someone pulls something like that so you don't even react? Well, okay, so I didn't do anything, and then on the walk back, I was just full crying. And I was just like, think, I was like, wait, does my dad love me? <laughs> does a girl's night mean your dad doesn't love you? Is this bitch highlighting the truth that I was otherwise unaware of? <laughs> I'm actually just afraid to take an honest look at? <sighs> and then I had to clean off my tears and pretend. <clears throat> I remember just walking back to the group in the house ready to be just fake as fuck. Um, I got back and I was like, yeah, it was so fun. <laughs> it was great. 
great sidekick. <laughs> Who wants to go next? <laughs> and I'm, in my mind, I was saying, okay, I'm just a fluke. You know, she really doesn't think my dad loves me. She had to tell me I had some sort of psychic moral obligation. <laughs> I'm unique. There's no way she would say any other bad shit to any of my other friends. She's going to make this a fun birthday party. <laughs> Terry is not a terrorist. Um, then another one of my friends goes, Allison Wright. And she comes back absolutely sobbing. <laughs> and can barely get her words out. She's like, she told me I was gonna be exposed to death very soon. <laughs> this bitch told that to a 12 year old at a birthday party. Here's the thing. Her grandma had just died a few weeks before. Had to have just been a lucky guess. You can't be evil and right. Right? So here's Allison wailing like someone had just died or something. And everyone's comforting her. And I remember kind of being mad at her. Cause like she was so upset that everyone was really concerned for her. And it was my birthday party. <laughs> I was like, have you no decency to hide your true feelings? She stopped being my friend after that day. Um, Oh my God, poor Allison thinking another person is gonna die. I mean, insane. <sighs> so a few more girls go and have like relatively uneventful readings <laughs> that we know about, at least. They could have just had the decency to hide it. <laughs> Went the classy route and showed some damn restraint. <laughs> but then it's time for this girl, Christine, to go. And Christine goes and comes back, choke crying. And she's like, she said my dad had a drinking problem. Christine is freaking the fuck out. She is infinitely more upset than Allison. I don't even know if her dad had a drinking problem or not. Who can know with these shifty 12 year olds? Um, but if he didn't, this bitch was putting on an Oscar winning performance. I mean, at this point it was just like bedlam. It was absolutely crazy, cruel, cruel bedlam. And I am just thinking, okay, Thank you, Terry. You're just telling us facts about ourselves. These aren't even predictions of the future. You're just like zeroing in on what the saddest aspects of our lives are. 
At my birthday party, Terry's reading should have just been to everyone, happy birthday, fuck you, you know? <laughs> At this point, I run into my mom's room where she had been trying to like stay in there to give us some space. <laughs> and I am furious and crying, just like, why didn't you screen this lady? Terry the terrorist! She ruined my life. I was so mad. I told my mom that Terry said my dad didn't love me. And she was just like, oh, because he's away playing golf? How ridiculous is that? What a bunch of baloney. And my mom has a very walk it off mentality. She went out to smooth things over, cool as ever, and was just like, well, girls, you know, life is in the bowl of cherries. Um, who can know what you're gonna get with these wackos? Don't make a big deal of it. Who wants ice cream? I was so mad. Just like, you couldn't have found a fortune teller better at lying? And she was like, well, how could I have known? You can't predict the future, Blair. <laughs> I was like, bitch, you kind of buried the lead on that one, don't you think? <laughs> My dad came home the next day, nice as ever, asking about my birthday party. <laughs> and you know, I hugged him, but I also looked at him for a much longer time than normal. <laughs> I will never know the truth about that day. Either this lady took her job very seriously and could not lie to us, or else she was just a ruthless cunt. <laughs> Either way, I think it made us much stronger people. <laughs> Thank you. Growing up as a kid, in a poor, dilapidated part of town in Richmond, Virginia, called Church Hill. Despite the fact that we were very poor, we were more fortunate than some of the other families because in our house, food was love. And the way my mama expressed it was special soup when you were sick, meals together on Sunday so we could be together, piece of cake, fruit, maybe your favorite meal when you felt bad. And even though it wasn't always the kind of food that we wanted to eat, my mama always made sure that our belly stayed full. Unlike the family that lived next door, the Davis family. Now in my house, it was just me, my mama, and my stepdaddy. Both of them were illiterate. My stepdaddy did labor, pick up jobs wherever he could find them. My mama cleaned white people's houses for a living, and ironically, she babysit their kids during the day. Now the Davis family was a family of four kids, a mom and a daddy, a daddy who did labor, pick up work, just like my stepdaddy all day long. 
But their mama, who stayed home, and whenever she didn't have any food for the kids to eat, or whenever she just didn't feel like feeding the kids, which was almost all the time, she would just let the kids loose to roam the streets, to maybe go to somebody's house, eat off of them, find something to eat, just find a way to pick up a meal any way that they could. Now, one of the kids in the family, we became pretty close. Well, we were about the same age. We had the same kind of weird kind of dreams. We had the same problems and issues in our crime-ridden neighborhood. But you know, children don't always need a reason to be friends. Just being around and having somebody your age to play with can be good enough. Now, I remember one day when Moses, the boy in the family who I became close to, he waited me out when my mama was cooking. We had just came back from school and my mama yelled out, it's time to eat. And as soon as my mama opened that door, Moses ran right by me, ran right to the kitchen, grabbed a fistful of mashed potatoes, grabbed a piece of chicken. He started to eating. He looked like a chipmunk. His jaws were so full. And my mama looked at him and looked at me and she yelled out, boy. And Moses just stared at her and I stared at Moses and then I looked at my mama and she took a deep breath. She said, wash your hands first. Well, my mama had always told me never to eat at the Davis's house. Well, she didn't really have to worry about that because I never really saw any food in their house anyway. The only thing that I remember them ever really eating was two things. You see, back in those days, you could have human food and pet food in the same place in the grocery store, especially in the black community. And I can remember there was something like uh, Star Kiss tuna that could be 50 cent a can right beside Cat tuna, which might sell for 20 cans for a dollar. And we know that the Davis had hundreds and hundreds of cat food cans behind their house, but they didn't own any cats. The only other thing I saw them cook something we used to call tangy meat. Tangy meat may have been like a depression era food. See, because back then also, when food would spoil or it'd be rotten, the grocery stores would just take this food and they would just throw it out in the big dumpster. They wouldn't put any poisons or anything like that and people could have easy access to it. And the Davises would take food like that, rotten, spoil. It could have maggots on it. Flies may have touched it. It could be decompose in all kinds of ways. They would take this old meat and they would boil it. That was supposed to sanitize it or make it sterile in some way. So what they would do is they would boil that, put more meat in it and boil it, eat it, boil it, eat it until that was gone. And I can remember in the summertime being over there at the house and a pot of tangy meat was on the stove and that thing was bubbling and gurgling and giving off an awful gas and it didn't even have any heat on it at all. Well, one of the things that changed stuff for a lot of the kids and the family in our community was when the government started issuing cheese. These blocks of cheese for a lot of kids and for a lot of families was probably more nutrition than they ever was gonna get during the day. And I can remember my friend Moses, he loved, loved, loved his cheese. In fact, he told me once, I like my cheese sandwich with no bread. I thought, no bread? Man, that's just cheese. 
Well, the next biggest thing that happened in the community and probably had the biggest impact on my family, a lot of the other families in the community, and that was free lunch. That free lunch program. For a lot of us kids, that's probably more balanced nutrition than we would ever get. Most of us never even drank sweet milk or a regular milk, fresh milk at home until we got to school. And uh, the government went from giving us or requiring us to have one pint of milk to having two pints of milk. So that was something amazing. They made it really simple because it was just a one page form, a piece of paper um, that you had to fill out. And all that was necessary was your family to have the wherewithal to get it done. In fact, uh, for some kids, the teachers were doing it for them. But for some reason, the Davis family, they didn't get it done. So my friend Moses, he became involved in a different sort of crime. Um, it's something we call snatching bags or just snatching. And that's when a bigger kid, stronger kids, or faster kids will run up behind little kids going to school in the morning. And there was just a large number of us walking with our little lunch bags and lunch boxes in our hand. And a kid would just run up behind them, push the kid down and grab their bag and run off. Sometimes they would grab more than one. Occasionally it would be a small pack of boys, maybe two or three, but not very often. Now, for my sake, my mama also prepared me a lunch bag, and so I haven't had to worry about getting mine snatched. But I can hardly remember a single day when I was in elementary school that some kid didn't get their bags snatched. In my view, this was an awful thing. And I always thought to myself, maybe he didn't need to do this. And I had said to Moses on more than one occasion, why are you doing that? You know, maybe my mama would make you some lunch. But he never really took me up on that one. I guess even then when we were little, Moses had some kind of pride. But a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Who would really care that much? After Moses spent time snatching bags, he kind of leveled up. And then he started beating kids up for their lunch tickets. But by the time we got to high school, middle school, a little bit older, just snatching kids' bags became sort of passe. It wasn't enough for him to simply take their lunch tickets. He would also use that as an opportunity to take whatever little money they may have had. Maybe a nickel or a dime for milk or some other lunch they might have had. Whatever they had money for, he was taking that too. And starting to hit kids and push them around. I can remember one time when uh, Moses kind of talked me into it, but I'll... I was part of it. I wasn't free of guilt. But one time I let him talk me into stealing peach from the store. And so we both had this peach. We both had taken it from the store. And when we ran outside the store, my man Moses immediately started eating his peach. We took about five steps and he stopped dead in his tracks. His eyes got real big. He started waving his arms all around and then he fell on the ground. And as soon as his chest hit the concrete, a big old chunk of peach flew out of his mouth. And he started breathing hard and heaving up and down. And that chunk of peach laid down on the ground, just dripping with fluids and phlegm. And he looked at that chunk of peach, picked it up and threw it back in his mouth. And we kept on running. There was this time that uh, we were walking by this window and it had some broken glass. And inside that window was a bunch of tomatoes that somebody had left out there in the sun to ripen. And that was pretty common back then. 
My man Moses reached inside that window and snatched one of those tomatoes out. And at the same time he did this, and it's like in brain time, things slow down. As soon as he snatched that tomato out, that glass cleaved the skin off his arm all the way down to the white meat from the inside of his wrist all the way down to his elbow. And I just looked at it and it started with a bunch of tiny little red spots and then it filled up to one big spot and then it started to drip like sweat. And I instantly reached out to grab his arm to tell him, man, look, what happened to your arm? And he snatched his arm back and he said, uh-uh. No, man, I'm not going to give you none of my tomato. But as bad as his arm looked, it required no more than just wrapping it up with a rag. Scratches and scrapes that we endured where I grew up were everyday thing. Not the thing that any kid I grew up around would have went to the hospital for. Or even worried your parents about. By the time we had gotten a little bit older, a little bit bigger, and we are in um, high school... I can remember this incident in the cafeteria where now Moses is uh, really being tough with kids and he was just pushing this guy around and shoving him around and just it was what he did all the time, acting like he was just having fun with these kids as an excuse to take their food away from them. And one time I saw him in the cafeteria doing this and me and him, we caught each other's eyes. And I looked at him and he looked at me and he knew that I knew exactly why he was really doing this. It was this incident once where we were standing outside at the bus stop and this kid was out there eating a sandwich. And Moses ran up to that kid and he said, hey, give me that sandwich. And the kid looked at Moses and he said, hey, hey, okay, if you want the sandwich, if you need the sandwich, if you're that desperate, if you're that hungry, here, take it, take the sandwich. And Moses stared at the kid, and he looked at me, and I could sense his embarrassment. I knew he was ashamed, and he punched the kid in his face, and he ran off. I had known Moses most of my life. His drives were my drives. I knew what it was like to be hungry all day, but I also knew the pleasure of knowing my mama was going to be home eventually, and she would cook for me. I knew what it was like to want and be desperate, just like Moses. But I also knew that my mama would take care of my very basic needs. I had the same desire for fun and enjoy myself and to be a kid just like Moses. But he spent more time on basic things like food to eat. I had the same desires and drive to want to love and be loved just like Moses. Except that my mama hugged me, and she fed me, and his mom and daddy did not. I could not have known that the relationship between me and Moses, a guy that I had known most of my life, would soon be coming to an end. When one day, Moses was late coming to school, too late to get his usual breakfast and about the same time a young white teacher was also heading toward the school the school system had just started the integration 
There was a lot of white flight from the public schools, a lot of fears in the community about what would happen when schools were integrated and a lot of fear and a lot of apprehension around this whole issue. So on this fateful day when uh, Moses was late getting to school, this young white teacher was also late and she was scurrying to the building, books, lunch in hand, papers, and she ran into Moses. And Moses pushed her down, grabbed her lunch, and he ran off. And it didn't take long for the whole community to be outraged that this poor white woman was attacked in broad daylight by this black monster. Well, it didn't take long for Moses to be caught, charged with robbery, assault, attempted rape, which was a default crime back then for anything that happened between a white woman and a black man. Hearing about what Moses did and hearing all over the community people saying, what kind of animal could do such a thing? I knew what type. A hungry one. Food is love, but hunger will turn you into an animal. Mom and dad immigrated to New York from Hong Kong in 1970 for a better life. Mom was a homeworker. Dad was a waiter. Growing up, I never spent much time with my dad. He worked a lot of hours at a restaurant in Chinatown. However, on his days off, he always took me out to the movies. My dad does not speak English very well. I don't speak Chinese, nor understand it. What a perfect way to spend time with each other in silence at the movies. I remember when I was seven years old, in the early 80s, me and my dad are standing in the lobby of a movie theater, and I'm trying to decide what to watch. Bambi, Pinocchio, and this movie called Porky's. Porky's? What is that? I was so fascinated by the actual movie poster itself. The bubbly red letters against the white tile background reminded me of Chinese New Year's. Porky's because it's the year of the pig and I see a woman's arm and leg and it was very provocative and intriguing. It reminded me of the cover of Playboy magazines I would always see at my local bodega. And out of the blue, a bunch of older boys walk by us and they stare at the movie poster as well. And they look really cool where the button downs and their collars popped up and I hear a mutter, yeah, asses and titties, let's go see Porky's. And I'm like, asses and titties? What's that? Asses and titties sound so cool. And I look at my dad. Daddy, daddy, I want to see some asses and titties. Let's watch Porky's. And all the, all the kids are laughing. Yeah, the kid knows what he wants in life. Word. My dad, on the other hand, was as confused as me. He had to do a double take on the movie poster. And he looked at me with this frazzled look on his face. And he's like, no. Go see Pinocchio. You like wooden dolls, okay? And all the older kids were like, yo, that shit sucks. You don't know what you're missing out on. And they walk away. That afternoon, me and my dad are watching Pinocchio. 
and I just can't stop thinking about asses and titties. It's killing me, and all I want to do is just curl up in the fetal position and die, because I'm missing out on something great. And I tap on my dad's arm, and I'm like, Daddy, Daddy, I want to see some asses and titties. Please, it's Chinese New Year's, it's the year of the pig. Let's go watch Porky's. And my dad looked at me with a somber look on his face, like, wow, my son is really interested in Chinese New Year's. And he's like, okay, okay, let's see asses and titties. And we sneak into Porky's. I remember the theater was pitch black, it's silent. And I look at the movie screen, and there's a scene in the movie that was actually pretty scary. I see a bunch of adolescent white boys in gym shorts and t-shirts lurking around in what appears to be the boiler room of a building. And they walk up towards a wall, and there's a hole in it, and they stare through it. And all I see is naked girls, wall to wall, lathered up in soap and taking a hot and steamy shower. It felt like I was walking through a car wash full of asses and titties. And the whole theater just goes buck wild. Yeah! Ass and titty central! Woo! It was so overwhelming and barbaric, I had to put my hands over my face. And I tell myself, okay, I'm going to force myself to watch it. But it was just too painful. I felt like I was taking my medicine. And what I do is I wrap my arms around my dad and squeeze him as tight as I can. I'm like, daddy, I want to go home. My dad was like, okay, okay, let's go. We rush out of the theater and I feel something wet in between my legs. And once we exit, I look down and I see this huge wet spot in the crotch area of my pants. And I see the, all the kids from earlier in the afternoon at the concession stand. They look at me and my dad and they stare down and they're like, yeah, that motherfucker busted a nut, ha ha ha. And I just turned beet red. Although I never spent much time with my dad and there was a language barrier between us, it was obvious we both did not know what asses and titties were. However, we had an idea based on what we saw and heard that afternoon. It was a brief and embarrassing moment between a father and son. This is Risk, this is Black Joe Lewis, and the Honey Bear is behind me now. We just heard from David Who, who you can find on Instagram at DaveWho718, and before that, from Ray Christian, who you can find on Twitter at What's Ray Saying, and that's also the name of Ray's excellent podcast. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, 
If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And folks, if you don't already know, thestorystudio.org is where you'll find our school. All the faculty members are folks who also help coach people tell their stories right here on Risk. And we also do corporate workshops. That is all to be found at thestorystudio.org. And did you know that your help keeps this show running? If you become a member or raise your donation over at patreon.com slash risk, you will have tons and tons, hours and hours of bonus content all at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show our final two stories on this best of risk number 21 pretty unforgettable in a little bit we're going to hear from gail thomas a story that she shared live in new york city at caveat but before that we're going to hear a story that made a big impression on a lot of people. This is a longer story by Ernest Anfin, who you can find on Facebook at ernest.anfin.5. And I must warn you that this story mentions situations where animals were harmed. This story also inspired an hour-long unpacking, a further conversation between Ernest and myself that we put over on our Patreon. So without further ado, here is Ernest Anfin with a story we call The All-American. Today, if you were to see me walking down the street, you'd see an unremarkable, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, middle-aged man. But in my youth, in my youth, I embodied the golden boy, the all-American boy, the boy who could do no wrong. And I did all I could to maintain that image, to maintain that facade of perfection and correctness and, and privilege. But so often it, it was just that. It was just a facade. I, I was no all-American boy. I 
knew that I had a capacity to detach, to engage in violence. And so often it felt like this corruption was just beneath the surface, waiting to explode. And there were times when it did explode, and, and people were frightened, and people were hurt, and relationships were destroyed. After my second divorce, I, I just couldn't pretend any longer. I couldn't pretend to be him, to be the golden boy. It just wasn't me. I, I had to understand this corruption. And so I, I went to therapy, and like all therapy, it began with that familiar question. So, tell me, what was your childhood like? Well, I, I grew up on a farm in Iowa. It was really idyllic. As a kid, we had tree houses and apple fights, and we ran all over the country, and we camped out under the stars. We had every pet imaginable, dogs and rabbits and horses and hamsters. I mean, we had this giant pet cemetery, and, and whenever a pet died, we'd have a funeral, and, and we'd take a shoebox and make a casket out of it. We, we decorated it with glitter and beads and feathers and ribbons, and, and we'd make floral arrangements and headstones. I mean, everything. And we carried the casket through the grove singing hymns, and my brother would eulogize whatever we were burying. And we'd cry and we'd pray. I mean, we really did it up. It, it was quite a production. Cats, my therapist asked. She liked cats. D did you have any cats? No, no, no cats. I, I mean, we had cats, just not as pets. My dad hated cats. The only cats we had were wild cats that ran around the farmyard. He especially hated house cats, jumping on the counters and tables, the whole litter box thing, getting too close to food. I mean, ugh, it's gross. I mean, we all know it's gross, honestly. Yeah, there's a story. We all remember this story. We all remember this night. I was in elementary school, that age range. It was the fall. I wasn't very old. Dad had been combining corn all day, and he would combine as late as he possibly could into the night. So we were eating late, really, really late. And my mom had been teaching all day, my brother had been at school all day, and then he hauled corn all night after school. We were a bunch of tired, really, really hungry people. So we sat down at the dinner table. It was the stereotypical 1970s kitchen with the harvest gold appliances, the dark woodwork, the crazy wallpaper. And my mom, she was the queen of casseroles. She prepared a casserole of some sort. Tuna fish and noodle, macaroni and cheese, something like that. And we just finished praying when all hell breaks loose. This mangy old scrawny cat comes flying out of the cupboard behind my sisters. The cat just launches itself right over the table and lands smack dab in the middle of my mom's casserole. All of us kids, my mom, we shriek and scream because we're so surprised by this cat. And the cat is slip sliding around the casserole dish. Food is flying all over the place. But before it could jump out of the casserole, my dad grabs it by the tail. You damn cat! He swipes it off the table, marches to the porch, and along the way he grabbed a shotgun. And then he went to the front steps of our house and he threw the cat up in the air and... Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that cat was dead before it hit the ground. My dad did not like cats in the house. Not around food. Not after a long day of back-breaking work. Yeah, that was a night we remember. That didn't traumatize you, my therapist inquired, as a little boy? No, no. I, I don't really remember being traumatized. I, I thought the cat deserved it. 
That cat was always sneaking around trying to get into the house. Everybody in the family had kicked that cat out of the house, you know, a hundred times. I mean, sure, it was a cat, but it wasn't stupid. It knew better. Yeah, I, I remember I was a little pissed because now what the hell are we going to eat? The casserole was ruined. I remember the gunpowder burned my nostrils and the bang was louder, so much louder than I expected. My ears rang for a long time. That's what I remember, but, but I don't remember being traumatized. You don't think that affected you? You didn't grow up on a farm. You, you don't understand. On the farm, you're always so close, so very, very close to both life and death. I wasn't bothered by death any more than I was bothered by birth. And my dad, my dad loved animals. He wasn't even a hunter. He wasn't a gun nut. He wasn't a Rambo tough guy. In fact, he always talked about this horse named Goldie. It was his horse back when he was a kid. Goldie grew old and she eventually needed to be put down. So he called the vet. But after two lethal injections, Goldie just wouldn't die. The vet got frustrated and he took this rifle and he gave it to my dad and he said, it's your horse, you gotta kill her, put a bullet between her eyes. My dad reluctantly killed Goldie that day, out of mercy. But he hated guns after that and he resented that the vet ordered him to kill her. He said he'd never tell me to kill anything and he never did. I saw him save so many animals. I remember this one day, it was bad. It was, it was really, really terrible. My brother was mowing hay and uh, when you mow hay, you use a field mower, not a lawnmower. A field mower has a sickle blade. So you have to imagine this giant electric hair trimmer like a barber uses or a beard trimmer. But instead of cutting a path of hair an inch or an inch and a half wide, this thing cuts a path of grass 10, 12 feet wide. It's the same engineering principle. The field mower is just on a much, much larger scale. That's, that's what a sickle blade is. If you see it in action, it looks like a laser beam or something is attached to the side of the tractor. And as the tractor passes, the hay just falls down backwards. Our dog, Tippy was with him. The mower, it stirs up all kinds of pheasants and rabbits and other animals, and the dogs just love to chase everything that gets stirred up. And Tippy was our, our favorite dog. She was like a second mother to all of his kids. She was chasing this rabbit, and the rabbit ran away from the mower, but then it did a 180, and it turned, and it ran straight back toward the blade. But when it got back to the blade, it just jumped over the blade. Tippy was so focused on the rabbit, she didn't notice the blade, and she ran right into it. And the blade cut off her paws right below her ankles. My brother was hysterical. He jumped out of the tractor, and he picked her up, and he ran back with her to the farm place. And I'll always remember him carrying her down that dirt road under the shade of the walnut trees. His shirt was unbuttoned, and his chest was bloody. It was bloody all the way down to his knees, and Tippy was in his arms, and she was unconscious. And her bloody and mangled paws were just dangling by a few tendons, a few strands of flesh. That's all that held her paws onto her body. And he was crying and screaming for help. I mean, God, you talk about something that traumatized me. That traumatized me. I had no idea what happened. I didn't want to know what happened. I was just paralyzed. I thought for sure she was dead. But my dad, he, he jumped into action and he took Tippy out of my brother's arms and he put her in the pickup and they sped off to the vet. And the vet saved Tippy. It, it was incredible. It was a miracle, really. He reattached all of her paws. Well, her one front paw never worked again and she hopped around on three legs for the rest of her life, but she survived because of my dad. And I have no idea how much it cost to fix that dog, but my dad didn't care. He fixed her. And she lived for many years after that accident.
Did she die? Did Tippy eventually die? My therapist asked. Yeah, she did. She, uh, she did. That was, that was a sad day, too. My sisters were riding their horses along a highway, and Tippy was running next to them between the horses and the road. She always had to be protecting us. And, um, yeah, out of nowhere, this car just came along, and it hit Tippy, and she flew over the hood of the car and bounced off of the windshield and came crashing down onto the pavement. It was probably the blow to her head that killed her. My sisters saw it all, and the car never stopped. They sprinted their horses home, and they got my dad, and he went back down to the road with his pickup, and he brought Tippy home in a box. I remember petting her in that box. She was so small, and her body was dead and lifeless. We couldn't bury her in the pet cemetery, not with all the other animals. Tippy was the queen. She was the queen. She couldn't be buried like a common pet. So my brother dug a a special grave for her in a row of pine trees behind the house. It was a quiet place, especially at sunset. It it was really, really quite a lovely place. And we buried her there. We piled rocks on top of her grave, and, and we put them in the shape of a heart. And we also stuck a cross on top of that grave. I don't know. For some reason, we believed that all of our pets were necessarily Christians. My therapist chuckled, scribbling on her notepad. Oh, the blood, my God, the blood, she said. I get nauseous just listening to you, she shook her head. Blood? I I haven't even told you a bloody story yet. Oh, really? I I just get so queasy when I have to think about blood. I do, but go ahead, go ahead. I can take it, I can take it. So I continued. Yeah, I'll never forget this one day when my dad and I went to the butcher shop. We took this beautiful black Angus steer to be butchered so that we could eat it. I don't know, I was probably seven or eight years old. I don't remember a lot, but I remember the butcher was wearing white overalls and rubber gloves and boots. His kill room was huge. It was all white with a red floor, and the floor sloped to the center where there was a big metal grate that covered a drain. The ceiling was really, really high, like like probably 20 feet high. There were stainless steel carts and cabinets, knives and saws, and so many other things that I had never seen before. And there was a big cable that hung from a pulley in the ceiling, and on the end of the cable was a hook. I was transfixed. I was really fascinated by everything in the room. It looked like something out of a horror movie. It all seemed sterile, but obviously so, so deadly. Bang! I I was startled. I turned. Uh, The steer dropped to his knees. Air rushed from his lungs as he fell. There was a guttural bellow as his head hit the floor, and and then his legs buckled, and his body rolled to the ground. Blood trickled from his nose and mouth. Quickly, the butcher grabbed the hook that was hanging from the ceiling, and he forced it through the steer's septum. He pushed a green button on the wall, and an electrical winch lifted the steer until he was dangling. His entire body was dangling from the ceiling, directly above the metal grate. And then he lowered the steer until his neck was at eye level. The butcher took this incredibly long, sharp knife, and he began to swipe, 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 swipe at the calf's neck. He he wasn't reckless at all. He was incredibly precise. He swiped around and around the calf's neck until this, this thin white line appeared just beneath the steer's thick black coat. That line grew wider and wider until it turned red, and then there was this waterfall of blood that came gushing from the steer's neck. The blood ran like a river down his body and into the metal grate, and and then a few seconds later there was this pop. I don't know, the butcher sliced through something, a vertebrae or something, and the body separated from the head and it came crashing to the floor with this heavy squishing sound. 
and the pool of blood widened as the carcass fell over the drain. I, I remember the blood beneath the body was was frothy and foamy, and I, and I didn't understand why it was that way. It was just frothy, and I didn't expect it to be like that. I wasn't shocked. I was I was still. I was in a trance. The whole thing happened so quickly. This animal was alive a few minutes, a few seconds ago, and here his head was dangling from a hook. His lifeless eyes were glazed over and staring back at me, separated from his body. I would have called it surreal, but I didn't know what surreal meant at that age. I I looked at the blood on the floor and then back at the head dangling from the ceiling. And before I knew it, the butcher had grabbed the head and pulled it close to his body. He smiled and he said to me, Hey kiddo, you can't butcher a steer without getting a little bloody. And then he pushed the steer's head, swinging it like a giant pendulum. It swung over me, and for whatever reason, I remained lost in that moment, paralyzed. I heard the calf's severed head as it swooshed over me, and I looked up and was eclipsed by this this mass of severed tendons and cartilage and ligaments and muscle tissue. Blood rained down upon me, and the head traveled back to the butcher, and he caught it and laughed. And then I laughed, and my dad laughed. My therapist raised her eyebrows and cocked her head. Now, you're going to tell me that that didn't traumatize you. Yeah, yeah, honestly, I I thought it was kind of cool. It felt like some kind of initiation rite into a fraternity or brotherhood or whatever. Hell, that steer was turned into a hundred packages of meat wrapped in white paper and stacked in our freezer. I had zero problems eating that calf. I had no remorse. My therapist looked up at me. So you don't remember being bothered by any of this? You were never bothered? You just detached from all of this? Amazing, she said, shaking her head. Well, there's one story that kind of bothers me a little bit. Okay, tell me, tell me that story. I was in this dark place, this pitch black place. But in the stillness, I felt something apart from me, and I heard a distinct, separate sound. I knew what it was. It was rats. There there were rats in the bottom of the grain bin. They were in every corner. Two or three were in every corner. And then my dad engaged the grinder below. I, I didn't have a problem with rats. I'd been around rats my whole life. I'd killed hundreds, if not thousands, of rats without a second thought. And I knew I was going to kill these rats, too. I drove my scoop under one of the rats, and I used it like a snowplow. The rat was totally unaware that the grain beneath him was moving. And when he was over the hole, I pulled my shovel out, and the grain began to flow through the trap door in the floor. It was like the rat was sinking into quicksand, and by the time he realized what was happening, it was too late. He could try to run, but the gravitational pull of the grain was too strong. He couldn't outrun gravity. He struggled at first, but eventually he surrendered. Eventually he was consumed by the grain. First his body, then his ears, then his head, and finally his whiskers twitch, twitch, twitching as he disappeared below into the grinder, pulverized into hog feed. The grinder roared and chewed up everything that fell from the ceiling, and I repeated the snowplow routine over and over until eventually there were only a couple of rats left. I think it was the second to the last rat. I don't think it was the very last rat, but I I pushed him over to the trapdoor and he began his irreversible descent into the grinder. Like all the others, he struggled at first, but but resigned eventually. Eventually, the quicksand of grain engulfed him, and he disappeared below the surface with his whiskers. Twitch, twitch, twitching. And I sat there, breathing, motionless, silent, watching him disappear into death. 
And then, bang, the surface of the grain exploded and that rat burst like a missile, heading straight for my foot. I didn't realize it, but the lace of my boot was untied and the laces were really, really long. Like the grain and the rats and everything else in the bin, my laces were sucked into the gravity flow. And that rat was using my lace as a lifeline. Hand over fist, he was propelling himself out of the grain, away from his death and toward me. In a split second, his claws were on my boot. A split second after that, and his claws dug into the skin of my calf. Oh my fucking God, I thought, he's coming up my leg. He's coming up the inside of my pant leg. God damn it, he's going to go for my balls. He's going to castrate me. I'll be a bloody mess. I I was only 15. I hadn't even had a chance to have sex yet. How would I explain this to a girl, to anyone? I'd never be a father. What the hell am I going to do? I I couldn't run. I couldn't strip off my clothes. I was wearing a coverall. He'd be at my balls before I got the damn thing unzipped. There There was only one thing I could do. I thrust both of my hands into my thigh, and I wrapped my hands as tightly as I could around my leg. And luckily, luckily, I hit my mark. I hit his neck. And I squeezed and I squeezed the son of a bitch against my thigh. And he kicked and he kicked and he dug his claws into my leg and scratched and scratched. And I squeezed and squeezed and he kicked and I squeezed until he stopped scratching. And then I squeezed a long time after that. I had to make damn sure that bastard was dead and I squeezed until I let go. Until his body was still and rested motionless against my thigh against the scratches he left on my leg. I stood and I shook my leg. His limp, lifeless body slowly slid down my thigh and around my knee and fell out the bottom of my pants. Holy fuck. Holy hell, I thought. His lifeless eyes stared up at me in the darkness. You, you fucking bastard. I beat you, goddammit. I beat you. You're fucking dead. My hand was cramped and my heart was pounding, ready to leap from my chest. With my boot, I slid his carcass to the trap door and kicked him over the edge, into the grinder. My therapist looked up at me again. Why do you think that story bothers you? Well, I said, whenever I think about strangling that rat, I I just wonder if I'm some kind of psycho. I mean, didn't Jeffrey Dahmer have stories like this? Didn't he start this way? (laughs) I mean, I can't imagine my kids experiencing any of this. I I didn't have a normal childhood. I I don't know what a normal childhood is, but, but I know I didn't have one. I feel like these stories strip away my all American facade. They leave me naked and bare. They corrupt the memories of my idyllic youth. They expose me and shame me. I don't want them to be part of me. But the truth is, they are part of me. The All-American is the dogged father combining corn. The All-American is the unappreciated mother cooking casseroles late at night. The All-American is the boy carrying his dog down a dirt road shaded by walnut trees. The All-American is two girls sprinting their horses along a rural highway. I mean, these are the all-American images that are so often presented to us, the Norman Rockwell ideal of America. You can't deny that, and, and, and I live that. But, but the all-American is also the shotgun blast that leaves our ears ringing and our nostrils burning. The all-American is the tendons and the muscles and the tissues of bodies being ripped apart. The all-American is long, sharp knives swipe, swipe, swiping through waterfalls of frothy blood. The All-American is strangulation and suffocation, leaving nothing but lifeless eyes staring back at us in dark, dusty places. 
I mean, the truth is the truth. If you love the All-American, you can't look away from its violence. You can't pick and choose. You can't just wish for the corruption to disappear. If we ignore that truth, the truth of who we are may very well destroy us. But some say fear is the beginning of wisdom. So let us be wise in our fear. Let us see ourselves for who we truly are. And let us fight the evil within ourselves. See if I can remember how to do this. Oh, gosh. Hi. So I'm putting on my shoes. I've got them all laced up, and I'm pretty much ready to go. I just had the... um, my second annual follow-up visit after my cancer treatment, two years clear, and um, thank you. It's well back, but um, my and my nurse practitioner Christine comes into the office, and I she looks at me and says, uh, "Would you um, be interested in doing a study for cancer survivors with anxiety and depression?" <laughs> I'm surprised and offended. <laughs> It's been two years. I got through the cancer. I did the surgery. I did the chemo. I got through the relationship breakup. I even got through the loss of my little dog, Rusty. He had cancer the year after I did, and he didn't make it. But I'm fine. I have a job. I'm working. I'm functioning. I'm fine. In fact, I learned something that a girl from Oklahoma doesn't necessarily know. I learned how to stand up for myself. That's right. I, after going through all of this stuff, everybody, I stood up to doctors, I stood up to family members, anybody that wasn't good for me was out. I got rid of all the toxic people, and there was no one left. (laughs) They don't understand me. My family and friends, they don't understand what it's like to think you're going to die, to be fighting for your life. It's really exciting. (laughs) Every day was a life or death decision. Cancer, chemo, radiation. What am I going to do? How am I going to live? It was so exciting. And now that I'm back in this real normal world thing, I can't really relate to anybody. Now my decisions are like soy milk or skim. It's boring. And I just want to talk about the meaning of life. I don't want to talk about Starbucks. I just really pull away from people, and I don't trust them, and I don't really want to... All right, so just tell me a little bit about the study. Maybe I am a little... Maybe just tell me a little bit about the study. And so she ushers in two people, and they sit down. There's uh, First of all, there's Dr. R., and he looks like just like an absent-minded professor. He's probably in his late um, 30s. He has dark black hair and a tweed jacket and this little dorky grin on his face. And he's sitting there all sort of straight-laced. And, and sitting next to him is his assistant, Gigi, who's got, you could tell her, so her hair's, she's wearing a flowy skirt and her hair's up in this bun, sort of disheveled bun. And she looks like the hippie chick and he's the professor. And I'm like, oh, they're very cute. And Dr. R starts to talk and he says, well, this is a study that has been done at at um, UCLA and John Hopkins, and now we're going to do it at NYU. And it's a drug. It's, you're only going to do it one time, one drug, and one placebo. 
And I'm like, you know, I don't really want to do any more drugs. I did the chemo. I'm kind of don't want to do drugs. And then he says, well, and there's, there's four months of free therapy. I do like a good deal. So I'm like, okay, so just tell me more about, about this drug. What's the drug? And he says, well, it's psilocybin. And I say, what's that? And he says, magic mushrooms. Oh, my gosh. Ram Das, Timothy Leary. I always imagined that I was like some sort of hippie chick. But when I was in college, I was so hyper. And I just already had so many crazy ideas in my head that I was sure that I was going to be the person that would think I could fly and would jump off the roof. So I didn't do any of that stuff. And I'd, I'd done, you know, in my adult life at this point, I'm 40-something. I'm and I, I'd done a little pop, but it didn't really work for me. So I was like, wow. <laughs> and he looks at me really looks into my eyes and he says we will help you okay sign me up i'm doing this thing i mean my friend joe says that i'm the luckiest unlucky person he knows i got cancer but i get to do mushrooms legally in an fda study it's like winning the cancer lottery so we start the therapy immediately, and I, I go to these weekly sessions in this lovely little sort of like living room space with this futon, and I get two doctors who just sit across from me and ask me questions. I mean, they're dedicated to me. And at the time, I had, you know, I'd started fostering dogs just to help me get over Rusty, and I, I thought, they're like fostering me. And it's, it's just so nice that somebody actually cares, because it's hard to leave your doctors behind when you're getting over this stuff. And so they asked me a lot of questions and there's a lot of forms I have to fill out so many forms multiple choice and like one through ten are you eating are you losing weight are you gaining weight are you depressed are you suicidal have you ever had a traumatic experience have you ever you know had a great spiritual moment it's like so many forms and so finally the big day comes the big day I'm so excited and they tell me that I should bring something from home so I bring some photos and I bring Rusty's little squeaky duck I get there, and uh, I can see now that the futon that I've been sitting on for all our therapy has been turned into a bed, and there's a little blanket, and there's a blindfold, and there's a headset, and my friends are all like, oh, if you're going to do mushrooms, you need to go out into the woods, and you need to experience the, the trees and the leaves, and the... I'm like, this is an FDA study, I'm going to be staying in that room, and they're going to be staring at me. <laughs> and I'm also thinking, this is going to be so boring for them, but it's my day. So that's their problem. <laughs> so, so Dr. Ross gets me up, and, and we, sit, we stand in a Dr. R, and we stand in a circle, and we hold hands. He says, "Okay, now you need to have an intention." I'm like, "Okay, uh, intention, peace, love." I just my intention is to do this drug. Can we please, can we please do the drug? And he has he has a special little pill that they've actually measured based on my weight and everything, and it's in this little glass jar, and the glass jars in a chalice. And so we hold hands, and then I lay down, and I put on the blindfold, and I put on the headset. And the NYU doctors, the whole staff has gotten together and made this, like, psychedelic playlist, which is amazing. It is so fantastic. So I start listening to this music, and I'm like, this is going to be so internal. And I, I don't feel anything. 
thing in the beginning and I'm like oh damn this is the placebo and I'm just sort of like oh this is so boring and then suddenly I start to really feel tired and I'm yawning and then suddenly I start to feel all this information like rushing into my head and it's it's a lot and I'm thinking okay something is happening and then I see these two like cow heads these psychedelic paper mache like uh, colorful cow heads sort of going across my vision and then I see this cat chewing on my my bicycle the the, the tape on my bicycle and I don't know what that's about and it's like the, the information just keeps my head feels so full it's like every yogic thought every piece of wisdom it's just too much I can't there's so much wisdom coming in there I can't believe it all there's a lot coming and so then I am um, I am um, I clutch Rusty's duck to my chest and I I have two really tough moments I have a moment where I remember putting Rusty down and then I have this really sharp pain of self-hatred and it's shocking and it's painful and then the second I feel it it's gone because I'm like that's ridiculous I can't possibly hate myself I'm amazing I'm so wonderful I'm just fantastic that's silly and so I lift up the mask for a second and I see Dr. R sitting over there just looking at me and I see the art books behind him and I think art books there's truth in the art books I look back at Dr. R and he says TLO trust and let go trust and let go and I'm like, put the mask back on, and I start to feel more and more. And then I see, I see this this beautiful like farmhouse, like a little house on the prairie with a with a, a little house, and then this big field, and there's a lady standing in the middle of the field. And I think, oh my God, I just think maybe she's me, and I know that I admire her greatly. She's so amazing. And and then I just start thinking about all the different people in my life, and I think about an ex boy from a long time ago, and I could have married him, but I didn't, so that's okay. And then I think about the last guy, and I think the last guy, well, he's not supposed to be here now anyway so that's fine and so then suddenly I'm sort of floating in the air and I'm looking down on something and it's kind of like a it's like a table but it's sort of like a puzzle table sort of fuzzy and I look down at the table and I see there's the part of the table sort of cut out like a pie and it's cancer cancer's at the table I'm like, oh my God, cancer's at the table. Of course, it's not like bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's supposed to be at the table. And then my whole family's at the table and I see everybody at the table and I think, well, you know what? They tried as hard as they could. Sure, my brother wanted me to do a bunch of treatment and he was wrong and my dad came to, to, to the surgery of my mom and they didn't. They actually had me wait on them when they when after I was had surgery because I was a Percocet and I was like, but that's all right. They tried the best they could and I think that, that you know what? They love me. They just, they did the best they could and they didn't really mean, they love me and I love them and that's beautiful and I just started thinking about how, you know, I used to paint and I used to draw and I really love that and I used to perform and I haven't done that in so long and I need to participate. I need to really contribute because, you know, there's a lot out there and it doesn't really matter if you're like old or young or fat or skinny or old or young or fat or skinny. You just need to contribute. You just need to do stuff and participate because we're all connected and we all go together and it's just so beautiful and I think that this is, I really got to stop fighting so much and I need to just, just live and I need to trust and I need to let go and it's oh I'm eventually six hours later <laughs> the euphoria sort of starts to drift away and I take off my mask and I sit up and and Dr. R and Dr. K ask me how it is and they give me more forms and they have me write down everything that happened which is why I can say it all to you tonight <laughs> so, 
I remember it. And um, a friend of mine comes to pick me up, and, and we get in the cab, and we're driving back to my place. And as we drive back to my neighborhood, I see these two ladies sitting at a table, and they're talking. And I think, isn't that fantastic? Look at them. They're friends. They're talking. It's so beautiful. They're friends, and they like each other. And it's just amazing. Oh, and, and it just it, it kept feeling that way for the next six months and the next two years. And I had the great honor of being patient number 13 out of 29 in a groundbreaking study. And the results have been published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology twice. And the results were that 70 to 100% of the participants felt like it was the most spiritual, most meaningful experience of their life. And 80% of us, after three years, still felt the effects. That was nine years ago. So I wish I could say that I still felt all that in 2018 when my dad died and last year being quarantined. But I got back those feelings of isolation and depression. But telling this story again and being here with you guys and sharing this moment reminds me once again that I'm morphing in and life is moving on and it's going forward and this is another thing at the table. And I can participate and we're connected and I just gotta trust and let go. Thank you. is all for this week's episode folks this has been the best of risk number 21 this is bleachers behind me now and we just heard from gail thomas who you can find at gail-thomas.com don't forget if you go to risk-show.com slash real you can hear the first two episodes of our entirely new podcast series called real real is for people who like stories and people who like podcasts but who might be a little shy about how rated r and how you know trigger warning worthy risk can be like uh, had to give a little warning about the ernest anfin story in this episode 
Rio will not have to be labeled explicit. You can play it with kids in the car if you want. So if you'd like to hear it and you'd like to play it for some friends and give us some feedback, just scroll down to the feedback form at risk-show.com slash real. And pitch us! Folks, if you are in Seattle or Portland, we are coming soon. We'll be in Seattle on November 18th. We'll be in Portland on November 19th. So send us your pitches. You could be on stage at one of those shows. Pitch us on our submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions. And just mention when you pitch us that you live near Seattle or Portland. Also, you can pitch us from anywhere in the world if you have a Halloween kind of story, a scary story, or a winter holidays kind of story, a, you know, bright sort of Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year's sort of story for our winter holidays episode and our Halloween episode. Pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Follow us on our socials on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.